I'm going to pray before we start. Thank you, Lord, for being with us as we gather here today. I pray, Lord, that you would guide everything that's said, everything that's heard. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be in control of us, Lord, even though we might see through a glass darkly, Lord. We are trying to peer through the glass. I pray that you would help us and that you would encourage us, Lord, because you said that those who read the book of Revelation aloud will be blessed. I pray that somehow we'll all be blessed here, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we get started on chapter 14, I've got a few little odds and ends I need to uh, get straight. Last time, a gentleman over here held up a $5 bill. Do you remember that, for those of you here? And I didn't know what he was getting at. And I think what he was getting at was, if you use a $5 bill, do you have the bark of the beast in your hand? And therefore, if a Christian back in the early times was using a Roman coin, that didn't mean he had the mark of the beast. <clears throat> any more than it would mean that I have the mark of the beast by using an Abraham Lincoln $5 bill. I thought he was asking me, was Abraham Lincoln the Antichrist? And, of course, as a Southerner, I was tempted to say yes. I almost did. But uh, I figured it might offend some people, so I just didn't know what he was getting at. <clears throat> Actually, the mark was a symbol, the mark of the beast on his hand and on, on the hand and on the forehead of the worship of the sea beast. It's a symbol. And John probably saw that mark in his dream. And it says it's the name of the beast or the number of his name. It was probably 666 that he saw in the vision. It doesn't mean that it actually occurred on the ground. Uh, the other thing is, several people have asked me over the last couple of weeks, is there anything at the end? And I need to emphasize that again. I am not a heretical preterist. I don't think that everything in the book of Revelation happened in AD 70. We got Gog and Magi to go. We got the resurrection of the just and the unjust. We got the devil being thrown into the lake of fire as well as the sea beast and the lamb. There's lots of stuff coming up at the end. So, don't and bodily return of Jesus, that's important too. Another thing is that I want to emphasize, as I just mentioned about the mark of the beast, we have to distinguish the things that John sees in his vision with what we see on the ground. I'm going to bring it up when we get to the last verse of this chapter, because that has always hurt me in trying to understand the book of Revelation. I look at it and I say, okay, where's this image of the beast that the land beast made? What does it look like in the land of Israel? That was symbolic. It was in the vision. It wasn't meant to be on the ground. So we need to keep that in mind. And the thing I wanted to mention last week, I remember I said I had two things to say, and I said one, I forgot the other one. Well, Nero is the Antichrist. Now, a lot of people say, oh, no, come on now, Nero's not the Antichrist. Do you know that for the first 700 years of Christian church history, everybody, every Christian thought that Nero was the Antichrist. Now, one time I wanted to read a biography of Nero, and so I randomly picked a book off of my college library shelf, Nero by Edward Champlin, I think his name was. He's a professor at Princeton, history professor. And that was the first book on Nero I'd read. And he kept trying to say, ah, Nero wasn't all that bad. Nero wasn't all that bad. He was, he, you know, he was just like all the other Roman emperors. He wasn't all that bad. The only reason that people think that Nero was bad is that all the Christians thought he was the Antichrist. And Nero got a bad press because of Christians' nasty attitude toward Nero. That just proves my point. Everybody thought that Nero, all Christians thought that Nero was the Antichrist. So when you add that plus the 666 and do all the numbers, I think the case is a lot stronger. All right. So having said that, let's start on chapter 14. I'm going to call this the Grapes of Wrath, which we'll get to at the end of the chapter. Starting with verse 1, Then I, that's John, 
looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The 144,000 we've already met. We've met them in chapter 7, verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. And that's key because the 144,000, as we've pointed out before, are Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians who were preserved from the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 66 AD. And I've told you that story many times, and they escaped to Pella. Now, the symbolism, of course, is 12 tribes, 12 multiplied by 2 squared. That just means a lot of Jews, 10 times 10 times 10 is 1,000. That's a lot. So a lot of Jews are going to escape Jerusalem and make it over there to Pella. Now, John here has, sometimes he's on the, on the ground looking at Israel in the sea, and sometimes he's up in heaven looking at the throne room. Here he's looking, he's on the ground. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So Mount Zion, of course, is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. And so he's down here on the ground looking. Now, I said the 144,000 were sealed. They were sealed here in verse 7. We didn't talk about what the nature of that seal was. Here, I think the seal is the name. Whose name? The name of the Father. And the name of the Lamb, the Son. Stood, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him were 144,000 who had His name, the Lamb's name, that's the Son's name, and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And again, when you write a name, if I have a piece of paper and I write my name on it, what does it indicate? It's mine. Yes, yeah, property. It's mine. So these 144,000 are belong to Jesus. Now, this idea of the name showing ownership, you can see in Revelation 3.12, The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God, that's the God the Father, and the name of the city of my God, that's the New Jerusalem, the church, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name, that's Jesus' new name. Jesus' name is said to be new because he is the, probably, commentators disagree on that, but probably because he's the author of the new covenant, so he has a new name. All right, so this is easy symbolism so far. We go, well, we remain in verse 1 and look at this symbol, Mount Zion. Now, that is a very symbolic mountain in the Old Testament, okay? Basically, I'm going to show you that Mount Zion equals Jerusalem in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Mount Zion equals the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem equals the New Covenant Church. So when you see Mount Zion, you think New Covenant Church. That's us, all right? We prove that by going to Hebrews 12, 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering. So here in Hebrews 12, 22, the author of Hebrews says that Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, how do we know the heavenly Jerusalem is the church? That's easy to prove too. Galatians 4, 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, Paul says. If you read the context there, he's, it, he's talking about the church. And Jerusalem above, that's Heavenly Jerusalem, see? Heavenly Jerusalem. So Mount Zion is the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the Jerusalem above. The church is the Jerusalem above, so Mount Zion is the church. And this symbolism is carried forth in Revelation 21 2. 
I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Again, heaven and Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So when we see Mount Zion, we're talking about the church. So here we say it's appropriate that on Mount Zion there is 144,000 believing Christians. Not all of them, they're Jewish Christians, but they're on, they're on Mount Zion. Okay? So this is easy symbolism to start off with. Now we go to verses 2 and 3. And stop me if anybody wants to say something. And I heard a voice, that's John, heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. Well, let's stop right there. The voice obviously is loud. The sound of many waters is like ocean waves breaking. You know how that sounds. <laughs> loud thunder, you know how that sounds. But also like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. And generally you think of that as more gentle, more quiet, more beautiful. Well, this was a beautiful, loud sound, whatever that was like. And we go to verse 3, and they sang a new song. The they right here is a little ambiguous. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. So now John is looking back up into heaven now. I guess he's still, looking at the, he's still on the ground looking at the 144,000. But now he's looking up at the throne before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the land. So now, the question is, is who is singing this new song? Well, a lot of the commentators say it's har- heavenly harpists, they call them, are singing the song. But notice it's a voice that's like the sound of harpists. It doesn't actually say they're harpists playing. Uh, and so... There's another problem with that, too, is that no one could sing, learn the song except the 144,000. Well, how can these so-called heavenly harpers sing a song if they don't know the words to it? So we're going to assume the 144,000 are singing a new song. Now, what does new song symbolize? So the new song probably refers to a new covenant song because a new covenant needs a new song. All right, And these people are in the new covenant. They're Jews because in the Revelation 7 it says 12,000 came from Asher, 12,000 came from Naphtali, 12,000 came from Gad. So they're obviously Jews, but they're Jewish Christians. They're singing a new song. And they were purchased from the land. That means they were bought. Who bought them? Jesus did with His blood. Now, the thing that makes this a little difficult is that in verse 1 we saw the 144,000 on Mount on Mount Zion, which is on the earth, right? And here, they are before the throne. How can you, how do, what do you think that means? Or why is that? Your guess is probably good as mine. Well, if we are talking about a heavenly Jerusalem, then we're talking about a heavenly Mount Zion. Yeah, and, and again, it's a vision, and I think Paul, that, that, that John can Zoom up and down in the vision just like he's in an elevator. I don't think there's a problem. People, I, I just notice commentators get real concerned about this, you know, where John is when he's having the vision. I, just, I, don't, I think it thinks a little bit more fluid than that. All right. So we go to verses 4 and 5. These are the ones, 144,000, who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. Now let's start with the idea that these 144,000 are first fruits. Uh, who is familiar with the ceremony in the Old Testament about first fruits, how an Israelite had to offer first fruits to the temple? Yeah. I don't remember the percentage, but I believe during the 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would they would take the sheath, the first sheath that came in, and, and give it to the priest, which symbolized giving it to God. But what and, and what was the symbolism of those first fruits? Right. Well, the first fruits do. Does that mean that you give the first fruits to God, and those are His, and the other? 99.9% of the harvest belongs to you? <laughs> no, the, the symbolism is the first fruits belong to God, and that is a symbol of the rest of the fruits belong to God too. All right? So here you got 144,000 there, the first fruits. What do you think that John is getting at here through the Holy Spirit? What's he getting at? After the first fruits, uh, there's also uh, more fruits, and those fruits are the, uh, the Gentile Exactly, the Gentile Christians. We talked about that in Revelation 7-9 because there were two groups in Revelation 7. The 144,000, that was the Jewish Christians, a particular set of Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem in 66. And then, verse 9, After this I, John, looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. There, there's your Gentile believers right there. No one could number that. You could number 144,000, but you couldn't number these people. Standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches. All right, so here's the idea is that there's going to be a lot of people getting saved. And again, in Revelation, it's not only judgment, but there's also a kingdom. Kingdom is coming forth. Now, notice that these 144,000 have not been defiled with women. That means that the 144,000 in the vision are all of which gender? Men, right? Now, to show that that must be symbolic, the, 100, the 144,000, the group of Christians who escaped from Jerusalem to go to Pella, were they all men? Were they all virgins? No. Symbolic. It's one more indication that this is symbolic because obviously the people who escaped from Jerusalem, some of them were women. Didn't Jesus say, when you flee, woe to you if you're pregnant? And again, that's just one more indication of how when you interpret the book of Revelation, you cannot interpret it rigidly, literally, you end up in all kinds of trouble. All right, so let's go to verses 6 and 7. Then I saw... You what it does mean. Excuse me? You didn't deal with what it means. You said what it does mean. What, well, what does it mean? Uh, what does what mean? The first fruits? Oh, it means the 144,000, the, the, the group of Christians who escaped from Jerusalem went to Pella. Oh, the, okay. I see what you're saying. The, uh, the imagery, the metaphor that's often used in the Old Testament for spiritual purity is physical purity. For example, you didn't, you, you, if you're an idolater, you are said to commit adultery. Israel committed whoredoms, uh, engaged in harlotry because she was married to Yahweh, and then she went out and had quote-unquote sex with these idols, okay? That's, that's what the uh, imagery is. They were spiritually pure, in other words. All right. Now let's go to verses 6 and 7. Then I, John, saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Notice here is not land, but earth, because of this phrase here, nation, tribe, language, and people. The word gay is ambiguous. You have to go by the context as to how you translate it. 
He, this angel, spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now I'm just going to give you a heads up about the first three angels that are coming up in the next few verses, this verse and the next couple of verses. The first angel, as we see, is preaching an eternal gospel. The second angel is going to talk about the fall of apostate Israel, judgment on Israel. The third angel is going to talk about judgment on followers of the sea beast, the Roman Empire. So here we see gospel, judgment, judgment. Gospel and judgment. Gospel and judgment, right here in these two verses. Now, what does judgment have to do with gospel? Why does there need to be judgment in order for the gospel to be spread across the world? Exactly. And that's exactly why you got why Paul says in Romans 13 you got kings and governors because if they didn't the evil people in the world would completely slaughter every one of us in this room they would just take over the world. Well likewise this apostate nation of Israel as well as the demonic Roman empire would have done everything they could to snuff out the church. Okay. So now notice also that this angel is saying give God glory because of his judgment. Do we ever praise God for His judgment? Do you ever praise God? Thank you, God, for making hell. Have you ever done that? No, but I feel like it's worthy of praise. I do too, but I've never done it because it just doesn't feel right, does it? But there He is right there with no sense of shame. Give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Do you feel like praising God that Adolf Hitler got uh, wiped out in his bunker in Berlin in 1945? Is that a good thing? Do we praise God for that? I'm going to tell you, if you'd have gone through the horrors of the Third Reich, I bet you would have praised God for it. And I think it's because we don't have a sense of evil. We don't really know how bad evil is and and to go through it because we live in a civilized country and so forth. But if you really went through evil, you would praise God when the judgment came. So this is all through the book of Revelation. Judgment on the bad guys. All right, so... Uh-huh. You're vindicated or rewarded some. And that could be here too, yeah. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a good thing. That's a good point. But I think here, it's not talking about a good thing. I think he's getting us ready for those bold judgments, which is 100%. It's over. It's done. It's finished. Saranara Israel. And I think that's what he's getting us ready for. <clears throat> All right, so let's go to the second angel that's flying through the mid heaven, flying overhead. Whoops, no, let's don't do that yet. Let's stay here. Verses 6 and 7. This eternal gospel is announced to the inhabitants of the earth. Notice the parallel with what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, this good news, that's gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Eternal gospel announced, good news proclaimed. And all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Is that the end of the world? No, it's the end of the Jewish nation. The end of the Jewish age. Notice the parallel. And again, John, many people say this, that John did not have a version of the Olivet Discourse in his gospel because he didn't need to because he wrote the book of Revelation, which is his version of the Olivet Discourse. There are lots of parallels, most of which I haven't gone over, but this is one of them right here. All right, so we go now to verse 8 
And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, I said that the second angel would talk about the judgment on apostate Israel. But look here, it says Babylon the Great. It doesn't say fallen is apostate Israel. It says fallen is Babylon the Great. So did I make a mistake? Of course not. (laughs) No, no, I did not. And in fact, I'm going to prove to you with mathematical certainty, beyond a shadow of a doubt, uh, with the preponderance of evidence, beyond any reasonable cavil, that Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. Okay? Here's how you do it. You go to Revelation 11.8 in the chapter on the two witnesses. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city. That phrase great city is important. What is the great city in Revelation 11? It's figuratively called Sodom in Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? All right, so the great city is Jerusalem. No problem there, right? Let's go to Revelation 16.19. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nation fell Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. So in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 19, the great city is. All right, so here's how it works. If you got Jerusalem equals the great city, and the great city equals Babylon the Great, is Jerusalem thereby equal to Babylon the Great? Now, I don't know, have y'all, I know y'all have had algebra by this stage in your lives, right? Remember, I remember an algebra, they said, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Remember that? Two things equal to the same thing are they themselves equal to each other. And all that might be complicated, but does everybody see it? Yeah. Hmm, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And we've already identified now, why, why did you say the city's not there? The city's been there. It's, uh, it's there now. The ruins are there now. The ruins, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's uninhabited. Uh-huh. Uninhabited when John Yeah, that's probably true. It was true. so uninhabited, they lost it, didn't know where it was for, for a while. Well, centuries, anyway. Okay. So that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. All right. So now we could just say, fallen, fallen is apostate Israel. Now, the next question is, how is apostate Israel she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality? Well, again, this is the metaphor, sensual immorality is related to spiritual infidelity. Physical infidelity is a symbol of spiritual infidelity. And usually that infidelity was idolatry. But now the Jews had quit doing idolatry at the time of the Babylonian exile, 586 B.C., so whatever they're doing to the nations, it's, they're not making the nations. Israel is not making the nations actually do idolatry. With I mean, technical idolatry by making the idols, the gold and the silver. They're not doing that. But what are they doing? Well, in the Roman Empire, 7%, according to a famous church historian named Trulch, you might have heard of him, maybe not, but he said that 7% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. The Jews were everywhere, all over the Roman Empire. Now, let's say that you are a Roman and you are disgusted with the Roman pagan religion. You have no peace in your heart. You are tired of living and scared of dying, as it was often said about the Romans back then. And so you hear about these Jewish synagogues and they're talking about the one true God, Yahweh. Well, hey, I want to find out about that. 
And so they go to the synagogues. And there are a lot of them they were called uh, God-fearers. They, they started believing in the one true God, even though they didn't know who he was. Some of them became Judaizers. They actually started becoming part of the Jewish religion in some, in some respects. So they're trying, to, they're trying to work their way to find this one true God, Yahweh. And then what did the synagogues tell them? Well, you know, there was this fake Messiah back in Jerusalem. He had a bunch of people come after him. Well, we killed him. We took care of him because he was a liar. He was a fake. He was a fraud. And right now he's boiling a big vat of bubbling excrement in the midst of hell, which actually one rabbi actually said. I've seen his quote. And so they say things like that. Well, what are they doing? They are making all the nations, again, that's the Gentile nations in the Roman Empire, they're making them drink of the wine of the passion of, the, of, the, of Babylon the Great, Israel's, false Israel's immorality. Spiritual immorality, yes, sir? And it's more than misleading. They're actually directly leading them into hell but to deny Jesus, yeah. But you're right, they're misleading them, right. Okay. Any questions on that? Ooh, that's good. I hadn't thought about that. That's that travel over land and sea. Travel all over the Roman Empire trying to get proselytes. What's I, I need to write that down because I'll forget it. What's the? Uh, Matthew twenty-three. All right. All right. So now let's talk another. Let me give you some more evidence of how. Israel was deeply embedded in the Roman Empire and how much they affected the Roman Empire. Not only spiritually, in the example I just gave you, but also commercially even. In fact, we go back to Revelation 18, and I'm going to skip this chapter as we go through the book, so I'm going to pick up some of it here. This is the description of all that's happening in Israel. I'll read it real quickly for you. The merchants of the earth will also weep. That's probably the merchants of the land. The merchants of the land will also weep and mourn over her because no one buys. No, I'm sorry. That's the merchants of the earth. That's not the land. That's the, mo- that's the merchants of people who are doing business with the land all over the Roman Empire. The merchants of the earth will also weep and mourn over her because no one buys their merchandise any longer. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine fabrics of linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine wheat, flour and grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, slaves and human lives. Well, that just about covers it, doesn't it? Now, Israel was on a trade route between Egypt and Anatolia, Turkey, present-day Turkey, which, of course, was the Roman Empire. And lots of trade went between Egypt and the Roman Empire. You also had trade coming from Parthia, from the east, across the Euphrates River. And if it was going to Egypt, it would go through Jerusalem. You also had trade uh, just nine, Jerusalem, if you go to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, you got ships there, in Caesarea, Yapa, and they traded all over the Roman Empire as they went out on the sea. So Israel was a big, rich, vibrant, vital part of the Roman Empire. And as all these merchants go out through the Roman Empire, what are they going to be doing? 
They're going to be telling everybody about their, about their demonic religion because Judaism was a demonic religion. It, they killed Jesus. Remember that. We tend to think of Judaism as, oh, they're, they're so nice because they're, they have the Old Testament. We like the Old Testament too. But these particular Pharisees and Sadducees, they were evil. They killed Jesus. Remember that. One time I was at one of these Jewish wannabe conferences where everybody was Gentile, but they wanted to be Jewish. And uh, there was a woman there. She was the secretary of a Messianic Jewish teacher who was on TV all the time. I'm not going to mention his name. I still remember it. And she sat down and she was talking to me. And she was telling me what great people the Pharisees were. She said they got a bad press. People just say bad things about the Pharisees, but actually they were very good. And I remember thinking, lady, you need to go to an insane asylum. You're crazy. They killed Jesus. What are you talking about? They're good people. So we've got to get out of our idea that, there was any, that these were good people. Some of them were, Nicodemus, for example, Joseph of Arimathea, some of them. But as a whole, as a group, they were very, very evil people. All right. So there's a link now between Israel and the Roman Empire. And remember in chapter 13 on Sunday when I talked about we had two beasts. You had the sea beast, the Roman Empire. You had the land beast. What did the land beast do? He made an image of the sea beast. So that image was red, had seven heads, ten horns, and he made everybody in the land worship the sea beast. It's because the idea is, hey, we want to, we give our allegiance to Rome. We do not want to give our allegiance to Jesus. I don't have that quote here. Let me give you the quote. Remember when, um, who was it that said, um, it is good that one man die for the nation rather than that the whole nation perish? In other words, we're willing to, to let Jesus die, but we don't want the nation to perish at the hands of the Romans. We have no king but Caesar, they said, the crowd said. So, that whole theme here in this chapter and the last chapter is the, the, the demonic conspiracy, if you will, between Rome and Israel. All right, now we go to Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, that's the sea beast, the Roman Empire, and his image, that's the idol that the land beast made, and the image looked like the sea beast, because the, the land beast is trying to get everybody to worship the sea beast. If anyone worships the beast, or his image, and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now this is the mark of the sea beast, the mark on the forehead, mark on the hand. Again, 666 in the vision, not, not an RFID chip, not a microchip under the skin, you know, all that stuff. It's basically talking about people that will sell their souls to the Roman Empire so they don't lose their position in the country. And I believe that John was mainly talking about the Jewish leaders, because they're the ones that were really concerned about losing their place with the Romans. And so that's why he's saying, hey, you worship the sea beast, here's what you're going to do. You'll drink the wine of the wrath of God. So wine is likened unto wrath. You drink it, that's not good. And it, notice that it's mixed in full strength. It's not this diluted wine. It's full strength wrath. You're going to get God's wrath full strength. You will be tormented with fire and brimstone. That's the typical symbols of hell, of course. Brimstone is sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So he's saying, hey, you know, 
you, you better follow Jesus and quit trying to worry about what the Romans are going to do to you, Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, notice that this wrath of God that's poured out on the sea beast here, you notice it's done in the presence of the Lamb. And what that means is the Lamb approves of the wrath that's coming from God the Father. So God the Son and God the Father are united in their desire to wreak judgment on the Roman Empire. Or actually not on the Roman Empire, but on those who worship the Roman Empire. Many of whom, of course, were in the land of Israel. Now this idea of the wrath of the Lamb, I love this because most people, when you think of a lamb, what do you think about Nice little fuzzy animal with white curly wool and the little kid hugs the lamb. And, you know, Jesus loves little children just like that. And it's a perfect imagery for that. But here, the lamb is angry because toward non-believers who blaspheme him and who lead people away from him, it's like a millstone around your neck. That's bad business. He's wrathful. He's angry. It's not just God and it's not just Jesus. It's both of them are angry. Revelation 6.16 said this, And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, God the Son. So both of them are angry. We go now to Revelation 14.12 and 13. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Here. What is here? What is the perseverance of the saints and their faith? What is that? Well, now, <clears throat> that phrase is exactly what is said in Revelation 13.10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Notice the phrase there. Here is perseverance and faith. In Romans 13 and Romans 14, here is perseverance and faith. So it's very similar. Now, an interesting thing happened about this last week. Steve asked me about this and he said, you know, I read it. It doesn't sound like it's the bad guys that are, that are talking about here. It's talking about the good guys. Well, he was using the ESV, English Standard Version. And the ESV says, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone is killed with the sword, is killed with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Well, that would refer to Christians. The ESV way, the, the New American Standard and the King James has in, it, in the active voice. Holman Christian Study Bible has it like the ESV. The translation split. And I, I'm not enough of a Greek scholar to know who's accurate. Obviously, it's a, it's a split of opinion amongst the big shots. So, what is the perseverance of the saints? Well, we could go back a verse and say, well, the context is this. It's the wrath of God. On his enemies, fire, brimstone, smoke of the torment. And because the saints are having their enemies judged, well, that's how they can persevere. Oh, I can keep going, I can keep going, because I know these guys who are torturing me to death, they're going to get wiped out. They're going to be destroyed, and that means I can make it. Well, that makes sense to me. And that would go with the New American Standard Version of Revelation 13.10. Or you could go to the following verse, verse 13, and it could mean this. Here's the perseverance and faith of the saints. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, you can persevere because you know that even if you die, you may rest from your labors. 
And you are blessed when you die because you're a Christian when you die. And that's what gives you perseverance is to know that you can survive the persecution that's coming on you. I report you decide. You know, I don't know which way it is. It could go either way. But the point is, is that when there's persecution, there has to be perseverance. And a little application time here. Do you think there's going to be any perseverance of the church here in America? Oh, my gosh. You don't have to be a prophet to know that. It's coming. We might as well get ready for it. We've got to have faith, too, belief. That means belief in what you cannot see. That's what faith is, the essence of things not seen. And we might not be able to see our way out of what's coming any more than these early first century Christians could see. But they survived. Their church was established, and we're here today because of them. Notice that these who die the Lord from now on, they rest from their labors. When they're still on earth, they're laboring to do what? To get their salvation? Are they working for their salvation? No, they're working in the kingdom in order to spread the gospel, spread the kingdom. We don't work for our salvation. You notice that when they go to heaven and they die and they rest, their deeds follow them. Their deeds don't precede them. You don't go to St. Peter and say, hey, St. Peter, look at all the good stuff. I have a little old lady across the street. I gave money to the church. Let me in the kingdom. You don't do that because St. Peter's going to say, I don't care. And Jesus is going to say, I don't care. But if you go up to heaven and you say, well, here's the blood of Jesus. He died for my sins. Come on in. However, the deeds are still with you because they follow with you, which means God is not going to forget your deeds when you go to heaven. When you're in heaven, sure, all the good works you're going to do, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I love all those good deeds you did. The key is, is that deeds are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. As I'm sure you all know that, but it's kind of interesting that it's illustrated right there. Now, Christian, now let's point this out too. People who die in the Lord from now on. I've been talking about the 144,000, right? They were completely protected physically, even on this earth. None of them died. But that was just one group of Christians, all in the run-up to the Jewish war. There were people who died. Jesus said, they won't hurt a hair of your head, but some of them, some of you, they will kill. So he even said, he predicted that some people were going to die. So we need to remember that. This is, um, some of us might resist even unto, might have to resist even unto death, as they did. Now, Christians have rest. Contrast that with just the previous verse here, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. Those who receive the mark of the beast, who worship the Roman Empire and don't accept Jesus. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. No rest day or night. That's the distinction between the good and the bad. Now let's look at Revelation 14, 14, 15, and 16. Now we get into the grapes of wrath. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I'll stop right there. This is common imagery. Cloud, remember what I said clouds was? In the Old Testament, what did it symbolize? Judgment, right. Who's the son of man? And where did Jesus get that title, the son of man, from? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So let's read Daniel 7, 13. I continued watching in the night visions, Daniel says, and suddenly one like a son of man, that would be Jesus, 
was coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming up to the Ancient of Days. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was escorted before Him. So here we have the same imagery here. Cloud, Son of Man, clouds, Son of Man. So that means that Jesus is getting ready to do what? Bless people or judge people? Cloud stands for what? Huh? Judgment. And we're going to see that's going to help us interpret this this reaping that's going on down here. There's judgment coming. He has a golden crown on his head. Crown stands for authority, kingly authority. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. That's Jesus. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour or the time, the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the land is ripe. Now, here's a question. What kind of harvest is Jesus about to do on the land of Israel? Remember, Jesus said, the fields are white unto harvest. We need laborers to go into the harvest. Is that kind of harvest? Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. He's talking about harvesting some bad guys. Then he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle over the land, and the land was reaped. Again, with bad guys. We go to verses 17 and 18. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So Jesus had some help doing this harvesting of the bad guys. Had another angel. Verse 18, then another angel, not this angel with a sharp sickle, but even another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar. That's probably the one back in Revelation 8, I believe it was, where there was an angel standing in front of the golden altar of incense. The incense was going up to heaven like the prayers of the saints, and then the angel of the golden altar would pick up the coals, remember, and he he threw them down on the land to judge the land. You remember that? You don't remember that. It's in there, I promise. You remember that? Good. All right, that's probably the same angel. He has power over fire. Fire means judgment again, so that's why the context is judgment, not harvesting souls for salvation, but judgment. So he came out from the altar, he called out, the second angel called out to him who had the sharp sickle. That's Jesus. says the same thing, basically. Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the land, because our grapes are ripe. Now, vine is a common Old Testament symbol for Israel. I got a string of quotes this long. I just picked one in Isaiah 5, 7, first part of the verse. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And if you read the first six verses in Isaiah 5, it says vineyard, 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 vineyard. Everyone referring to Israel. So that's an easy symbol. So he is reaping the land of Israel. And that's why this translation that the NASB and most other ones have is so misleading. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. Vine, when you see vine, that's Israel. That's not just the earth in general. Her grapes are ripe. That means they're ready for judgment. So now let's go to verse 19 and 20. It will be finished. Uh, The angel, now I'm using the NIV here for a reason. The angel swung it. That was the one that had the sickle that was helping Jesus. The angel swung his sickle on the land, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. You know what a winepress is? It's a rectangular area on the ground. It's got a little stone wall by it, around it. And they would throw grapes into the winepress, and then the women would get out there. And I don't know if it was just women. 
if it was in Greece, it would be just women. But anyway, they would just stomp on the grapes. And what a symbol that is. Because if the grapes are bad guys, what is happening? There's this red, purplish liquid that's oozing out of them. And what does that stand for? Blood. Yeah, because that's what blood looks like. Dark red, purplish red. The wine press of God's wrath. And the grapes are in there, so that's where we get the expression grapes of wrath. You already read the John Steinbeck novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Have you ever read that? Seen the movie Henry Fonda? No. One day you will. And that's where it comes from, okay? The Grapes of Wrath. Also, there was an unfortunate hymn written by our northern brethren during the war between the states. The battle hymn of the Republic. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know that line? When I was in the Presbyterian church when I was a little kid, I asked to have that song, song once, and the, the old ladies in the class, they looked at each other like this, and they wouldn't sing it. Now I know why. I won't sing it either now. Not because it's Yankees, but I'll tell you why. Because, you know, when you start putting political stuff in a Christian hymn, and you talk about stomping out the grapes of wrath, your you know, fellow, former fellow countrymen, it's basically talking about southern people, stomp them out. So that the blood's coming out. I don't know. That's the kind of Christianity. I, can't, I, I don't know about that. But anyway, that's where the expression comes from. These people, the bad guys, the people who, had, who worshipped the beast and took the mark of the sea beast, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's a Greek measure of length. First of all, let's take this word outside the city. This shows that the judgment that was coming on Israel was not just the city of Jerusalem. We've been talking about the city a lot. But the Jewish war wiped out the whole countryside. If you read Josephus, oh my gosh, it was just, the Sea of Galilee was full of dead corpses and blood all over the place and fishes dying in the Sea of Galilee. It was all kind of horrible stuff everywhere, not just in Jerusalem. And so I think this predicts that pretty well. Now, this blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses brought us for this long distance. Now, when I read this as a young boy, I would read that and I'd say, now wait a minute, how can people bleed so much that the blood would come up to a horse's bridle? Let's say the horse's head is right about here. I mean, we're talking about blood that deep over the whole land of Israel? That's not physically possible. The answer to it is very simple. Remember, as I said at the very beginning, we have to remember that this is in the vision. The blood came up to the horse's bridles, and in a vision, anything's possible. You've had dreams, right? All the things that happen in your dreams, there's all kind of crazy things that happen, right? So this is in the vision. It comes up to the horse's bridles, and the point was just to show how bad the bloodshed was going to be. Horrible judgment. And it was for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, most of the other English translations have things like 200 miles. They, tra- they, they take the Greek and turn it into English measurements, which completely obscures the symbolism of the numbers that were used. Now, in the Greek, it was 1,600 of these things, however long a stadium, a stadium was, I don't know. But 1,600 stadia is a symbolic number. It's not meant to be literal. What is, remember there's just a few numbers that you've got to know, the symbolism in Revelation. One of them was four. What does four stand for? The four corners of the, of the world. That means everywhere in the world, right? How about four corners of the land? 
What does that stand for? Every bit of the land. Every bit of the land. That's, now you take four. Now if you square it, that means you're just taking it to a higher power real fast. That means even, even further to the extent of the land is just an intensifier. And then, of course, 100 is 10 times 10. 10 means many. Just, and 10 times 10 times 10 is as many, many, many. So 10 squared is many, many. So the idea is the extent of the destruction of the land of Israel is shown by this Greek number 1600. All right. Application. For the bad guys, you better turn or you're going to burn. For the good guys, the bad guys will never, ever, ever defe- ultimately defeat you. And again, um, a lot of persecution, a lot of judgment in the book of Revelation. But that's not for us. The judgment is for those who persecute us. God has got our backs. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. I don't care how bad things look. And they do look bad now. And it's getting worse. But we are going to survive. I lived in China for 23 years. And I'm telling you. What we're having here is nothing compared to what they're having to go through and have gone through. And the church is just booming. People getting saved right and left. So we need to remember that. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.